<laughs> but I did. I stopped myself. You did. Good job. Thank you. Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. I am Ethan Bartlett, and I am speaking in as normal a voice as I ever do. Um, I sort of had a weird dream where I was a professor, and I was speaking in this... I don't even know what the accent was. Um, and anyway, that was that was bizarre, but here we are. It's... it's Daylight. We're we're uh, in the waking world, and I have a guest. My guest. Uh, oh, where where am I? Oh, we're recording. Hi, I'm Michael Lillian. Right, we said normal episode. Is this not, not normal? Five se- You're right. We do. You come and just wake me up and have a microphone in my face. And... <laughs> yes, like the BBC doing a gotcha <laughs> uh, reporting story in the 1970s. I do have a microphone with a very thin cord shoved right in your face, and I want to know what you think about the Falklands, I guess? Falcom. Wow! This might be the third episode in a row I have to slap the explicit tag on. (laughs) And I'm being angry at you to cover up for how good I think that was. The other the other day at the coffee shop I work at, some someone came up to the drive through window and he was a regular, so he, he was joking about this order, but he goes, I'd like a cheeseburger and a chocolate milkshake. Uh so I said, Sorry, our cheeseburger machine's broken. <laughs> Which was a story I had to introduce with no segue just to make up for you being that funny. <laughs> Tell you about a time that I also was funny. Um, We've got to have an even playing field. Exactly. I, I no longer have a grade to hold over your head. It's true. It's true. Um, so that said, yeah. uh, gentle listener, thank you for bearing with us through whatever that was the last two episodes. <laughs> um, we're we're back. We're uh, we're. This is now officially, I believe, season five in the way that podcasts mark seasons, which is however they feel like doing. Um, and yeah, we're, uh, we're happy to be here. Uh, you are too. Yes. Uh, that said, I don't know. We're still talking about the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy by one Lawrence Stern. Um, those first two episodes by way of what there is of explanation, uh, basically were Michael sort of creating a conceit to embody what he knew would happen anyway, which was me giving university-style lectures for at least the first two hours of us discussing this book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, thank you for admitting that. Uh, oh, gladly. Gladly, I'll take it. I will now tell you about the slow-acting poison that I put in your whiskey last night. Um, oh, that's what happened. Got it. Man, I, I just I fell into that trap. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> So, but, uh, I found it a very useful channel for the fact that, uh, if I didn't have some sort of, like, way to, to focus things, I would try to talk about everything in this book. Oh, and, sure. Um, it's especially tempting with this text because this book is a trying to be about everything. Uh-huh. Um, so that said, uh, let's do our 
normal episode thing and have Karen come in live and read in the person. rules. Live and in person, yes. In 4HD. Yes. Or she exists as, as an object that is also in time. Yep. Um, oh, you said 4HD and not 4D. Wait. Is it, what is it? I think it's 4K. 4K? Oh, yeah. Ultra anyway. 4K, Ultra HD 4, 4K. Uh, Karen Ultra. has left. <laughs> okay. Bye, Karen. We might have to use the recorded version of her oh. reading the rules. Okay. Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Thank you, recorded Karen. Uh, Robot Karen does a good job of imitating real Karen. Okay, we might have to have a talk about what you think a robot is. Because it's just a recording of someone's voice is not actually a robot. Isn't it? Did you not? I'm pretty sure that that's like the basis definition of a robot, isn't it? Just Um, like a machine imitating life. Isn't that what a robot is? Something like that. If we're talking about how perfect a robot, I mean, then you can add more details to it. But, you know, from its barest comparison, isn't that a robot? Are you Why done? are you looking at me like that? I, I, just, was, I just was waiting for you to uh, That's all. see if I could get any more out of you. No, no. Um, I'm not going to answer the question. No. I refuse to rise to your bait. Oh, fine. Um, no less than I deserve. (laughs) (laughs) So, where the heck were we? We're talking about this book, but first, we are going to drink. Um, Now, I I think I did an abbreviated job, but in character, I wasn't very good at at talking about what this whiskey is that we were drinking. Um, As has been mentioned on this podcast before... Uh, I did have the opportunity just before sort of um, America decided that we didn't really ever need any of our citizens to ever travel to foreign countries again. Um, Just before that whole set of circumstances happened, I got to go to Ireland. And uh, our first meal in Ireland 
Um, we went to a bar in downtown Dublin, uh, which the the bartender was a wonderful. A uh, wonderful man, originally from Latvia, who had lived in Ireland for long enough that he had picked up some of the accent, and it was <laughs> the first time I've ever heard a Europe, an Eastern European accent, sort of hybridized with an Irish accent. Um, but he was, he he saw me eyeing the whiskey, and he very correctly looked at me and said, "You want some whiskey?" Not as a question. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a statement, and I was like, yes, I do, and I said, you know, like, direct me to something that it would be hard to find in the States, if you if you know, and um, he said, well, I don't, I don't know, I, I forget how he phrased it, but basically he said, no one comes here knowing Green Spot, and it's a wonderful whiskey. Um, and weirdly enough, and this may be like yellow car effect, but like I had more than one conversation with people in Ireland who said, oh, you'll never be able to find Green Spot in the States. Or if you do, it'll be at an Irish bar and they'll only sell it by the poor. Um, and as soon as I came back from Ireland, like I was finding Green Spot, not necessarily everywhere, but there was like a big display of it in like the total line and where I live and stuff. And I was like, has it been here all along? I just didn't notice. Or, uh, or did recently. they? Yeah. I have to assume that they heard how much I liked it, because it did become my go-to whiskey. Like, every bar I went to, I pretty much ordered Green Spot um, at one point or another. So, uh, I think they just heard about me. And, yep, yep. And, uh, they, they knew how much they could sell you. Exactly. So. Um, which they were exactly right about. But, because <laughs> of that, uh, and because, Michael, you set the precedent ages ago of not always bringing scotch to the podcast. It's true, it's um, true. Well, you did it one time, which I felt meant I was owed one, and I've like, because you know there've been different bottles. Like I've had a really fine rye or two that yeah. I thought like maybe I'll bring, but uh, at that point I had to share this bit of Ireland with you mm-hmm. and with the listener. Um, but between you and the listener, only one gets to actually taste the things. <laughs> That's right. Really dunk on our listeners. I will. I will. Uh, <laughs> We definitely can spare listeners. I'm, I'm, we definitely can exactly. afford to offend anyone. Right. Well, I'm just acknowledging my privilege and how it makes me better than everyone. And with that, Slancha. <laughs> I am. So, Michael. Yeah. As been. I teased uh-huh. at the teaser portion of the episode. Uh, which is the very beginning, with what us in the podcast business call the little preview you give at the beginning of the episode. Oh, that's what that... Okay, got it. Uh, that's what the T... Got it. Yeah. You'd think that after, what, 50 episodes or more of this show? I don't even know anymore. I don't... I honestly have no idea. Uh, but you'd think that you would like know what a teaser years-ish, is? years-ish, almost. Yeah. And we've so. been doing pretty solidly, like, two a month almost since the beginning. Yeah. So we're pretty close to 50, I'd say. I guess. Probably. No. We have so many numbers in all of our episode titles, but none, none of them are ever the number of the episode. Right. Right. Um, anyway, you'd think that having done that exact thing consistently every single time, you'd know what a teaser was. You'd think. You'd but, think. But... Uh, anyway, what I was teasing, and now I've <laughs> belabored it slightly, <laughs> uh, was the idea of 
everything. Everything, yes. Michael, is this a book about everything? Uh, I think, as you said, it certainly endeavors to be. Do, do you have any more about that? or? Um, well, I, I'm, I'm going to introduce my own concept here because it's adjacent to yours. Sure. I wrote down as I was reading this a set of questions that I wanted to ask you about the book. Uh, oh, because I haven't talked enough in this no. episode. Um, okay. <laughs> but it's, I mean, they're questions also that I can talk about a little bit. Well, too, so. no, well, that's, that's the secret 13th rule, is oh, if you sure. ask a question, you can't answer it. Oh. So that would be... We would lose so much. I see. Yeah, um, it's true. It's true. Anyway, well, sorry. Th- this, this, I think what you're getting at, I think what you're getting at relates to question number two that I wrote down. Sure. Um, and I, I worded this deliberately. Sure. So I want you to listen to the question and then we can talk and see if it, see if it actually relates to your topic. And if it doesn't, we'll just go with your topic and then we'll come back to it eventually. Sure. And okay. also, uh. I would like to acknowledge the absolutely true assumption that I don't usually listen to questions before I <laughs> prefer to just start answering them somewhere in the middle. i got to cover my bases. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so question number two. Why, in Mr. Shandy's opinion, is it impossible to write the perfect book, and is it moral to attempt it? Um... All right. A, I did notice that you skipped question number one, so you're not going to get me on that. Good. <laughs> um, B, I have a question for you. Sure. Is this your attempt to create an actually good reading group guide? <laughs> a little bit, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you caught on to the way I worded it that way. Absolutely. Um, can you please read the question again? I will. Question number two. Thank Why... You. In Mr. Shandy's opinion, is it impossible to write the perfect book? And is it moral to attempt it? Um, so I feel like you're doing a trick that, to be fair, I pulled on you at least a couple times in the last pair of episodes. Uh, Just with the last clause of that question, is it moral to attempt it? Uh I feel like you're referring to some very specific passage that I'm not calling to mind right now. Um, but, and even the first part feels like you may also be doing that, um, and I would like to call you a butt for that. (laughs) Sounds fair. I mean, I would also have to call myself a butt, and I obviously can't do that. Um, Sure, can't do that. So, that said, uh, let me see. I, I, I do think if, if you're, uh... Sort of the thrust of your question is in the direction that I think it is, then I do think it is very much adjacent to what I uh, have asked. Um, Mm -hmm. Which uh, I believe that Tristram uh, says at some point that, or at least words to the effect, that the perfect book would be... um, it's something about that it would be one where, and this certainly is the spirit of the thing, one where one which contained everything. Sure. That you would need to, um, and this is really a key thing that I'm pretty upset that Professor Ethan in your brain didn't really <laughs> cover at all. But the idea is that uh, to talk about something, you have to give context. Oh, yes. 
Um, and Tristram gets hung up trying to give the context that would account... So he's telling the story of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that the to contextualize his life, you need to understand, uh, well, first, his literal inception, mm-hmm. um, which is why we have this, this opening that... If it hadn't been sort of encoded into British letters 60 years before the Victorian era, probably would never have existed if it were written in that era. Sure. Uh, an, an opening with his mother and father literally in the middle of a, of a, what academics call boinking. <laughs> um, that relates to another question that I've written down. Don't oh, worry. that's terrifying. We'll get there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the... Uh, uh, so the idea, of course, is that that this this conception and the the things Tristram has to say about both his conception, his his concept of conception, I guess, mm-hmm. um, all of that uh, relates to this this uh, this concept of context. Um, that to understand his birth, you need to have the context of his conception, and that's also, of course, why we spend so much time the day of his birth. Right. Um, but also, to understand that, you need to understand his father and his mother. Right. Uh, and to understand his father and his mother, you need to understand their relationships, and uh, um, it's a criticism that has occurred to me is that... Uh, well, there are more female characters in this book than you might expect a male writer of this era to include. Yeah. They are certainly the least developed. Oh, sure. Um, especially in comparison to Uncle Toby and Tristram's father and Tristram yeah. himself. Um, I and this this full I fully admit this may just be me uh, making stuff up to uh, uh, you know palliate my own uh, uh, tastes or desires or or just simply my desire to not dislike this book in any way. I, I like to think that volumes 10, 11, 12, 13, we would have gotten a lot more about Tristram's mother and the widow Wadman. Oh, sure. But that he just didn't... It's not that he neglected the female characters. He just didn't get didn't around get to there. writing them. But anyway, so the point is, you need the, the context of... Um, Erda, you, you are, you are right that I'm taking far too long to get to my point, but, uh, as a guest on this podcast, you're going to need to be a lot more polite about it. Yeah. Calm down. Yeah. Um. Take a back seat, dog. Yeah. We, we didn't tell you, gentle listener, that, uh, uh, we do have a third guest on this podcast. The, cri- the crypto guest. She had agreed to be a non-speaking role, and she's not doing a very good job of that right now. Only in the case of dire emergency was she allowed to to utter her voice, and she's yeah, and uh, she's I, I taking advantage of that loophole, possibly abusing it. I assume the wind did something, or mm-hmm. she smelled a dog or something, and yep. yeah, uh, <laughs> context. Anyway, yes, context. So uh, again, the idea is that you're trying to include everything. You're trying to include all the context. The context will always and inherently need other context. Right. Uh, it's an endless cycle. Exactly. Um, so Tristram, instead of abandoning this position, just 
sort of doubles down on it and tries to do it, but um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. inherently fails. Oh, of course. He uh, he says that explicitly. Um, book four, chapter thirteen, is where he gets to it. Um, he it's the third paragraph in is where it starts. I'm just going to read from there on a few paragraphs. He says, "Was every day of my life to be a, as busy a day as this, and to take up truce?" I will not finish that sentence until I have made an observation upon the strange state of affairs between the reader and myself, just as things stand at present. An observation never applicable before to any one biographical writer since the creation of the world, but to myself, and I believe will never hold good to any other until its final destruction. And therefore, for the very real, for the very novelty of it alone, it must be worth your worship's attending to. I am this month one whole year older than I was this time twelve months. And having got, as you perceive, almost into the middle of my fourth volume, and no farther than to my first day's life, tis demonstrative that I have 364 days more life to write just now than when I first set out, so that instead of advancing as a common writer in my work with what I have been doing at it, on the contrary, I am just thrown so many volumes back, was every day of my life to be as busy a day as this, and why not? and the transactions and opinions of it to take up as much description, and for what reason should they be cut short? as at this rate I should just live 364 times faster than I should write. It must follow, and please your worships, that the more I write, the more I shall have to write, and consequently the more your worships will have to read. Will this be good for your worships' eyes? It will do well for mine. And was it not that my opinions will be the death of me, I perceive I shall lead a fine life of it. Out of this self-same life of mine, or in other words, shall lead a couple of fine lives together." Okay, so and then he goes on and, and describes more of his plan of writing here. But he, he hits the nail on the head there that, you know, as long as it takes him to write one volume, yeah, he's fallen backwards, in fact. It, it was reminding me of something that I read in um, the preface to Neil Gaiman's collection of short stories, Fragile Things. Right. Where he tells this fable of a Chinese king who wanted a perfect map of his kingdom. Yes. And the only perfect map that could be made of his kingdom was a life size model of the entire kingdom which right. when you get it that large is, is extremely useless um, <laughs> right. so uh, which yeah I, I remember reading that and and definitely thinking of tristram shandy okay. there the, the the proximity here of, of these pages um to another relation of that question that the last part is it moral to attempt it um this is where he he teases uh, the idea that he's going to have um, some of his favorite chapters coming up. That is, he says, my chapter of chambermaids, my chapter of pishes, and my chapter of buttonholes. Um, and I forget which, where it comes, but he gets to a point later on where he reneges on that and says that he can't write that chapter on chambermaids and on buttonholes because it would undo the morality of the, the the nation or something yeah um and that's okay it, it's also very close in in proximity to um discussions of noses which are only noses yeah nothing but noses absolutely very clearly don't think of anything but noses when he talks about noses um point being um if you are to write the perfect book, if you, if you if you could manage it, getting all the context in there, every single bit of it, which even from the first page of this entire book, 
you get the impression that you would have to include things that polite society would find um, unpalatable. Unpalatable, thank you. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I was trying to find it quick, uh, but to me this, this also uh, goes along with the part... Um, I, I genuinely can't remember where it is. I know it's like closer to the second half of the book than the first half, but uh, where he skips a chapter. Oh, yes. And um, give, he, then he basically first uh, says, hey, did you notice I skipped a chapter? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says, well, I did this quite intentionally. And basically uh, the, the, the gist of what he says about it is that he had to skip this, or had to, that he wrote this chapter, and that it was the most perfect chapter yep. in his book, and therefore he had to tear it out because it would make all of the other chapters look bad. Yeah, exactly. And once you had gotten to the perfect chapter, why would you continue reading? Um, so he, again, simply had to remove it, uh, which implies that even if you could write the perfect book, you might perhaps have to burn it or otherwise not publish it um, mm -hmm. because morally speaking you would be making all of the other books look bad and I can't imagine that Tristram's sense of morality and fair play would allow him to do that right um, yeah uh, so uh, which honestly reminds me of nothing in this moment so much as The Plains by Gerald Bernane uh where you have a person working on how did that go he he was basically ended up trying to make a film um the perfect film and it ended up oh. essentially being that because you could never do that like it ate itself essentially yeah yeah uh which again Gerald Bernane is um to those who who know him uh he is one of the quintessential names in postmodern fiction. Oh, sure. Um, like, he is a quintessentially postmodern writer. And so it's stuff like this that also, like, makes Tristram Shandy seem weirdly postmodern. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, you could, you could say that, like, well, it, just because postmodern writers are known for sort of gamesmanship or for playfulness, like, doesn't mean that... Uh, um, you know that someone in in a previous century couldn't have done it themselves like you, you could accuse that that postmodern epithet of being sort of a surface level reading of Tristram Shandy um which is certainly you know a question worth asking or something worth probing but uh at the same time it's you know not um it's not just that it's a uh, it's it's things like this where uh, Tristram Shandy explores concepts of um, almost reducto ad absurdum mm -hmm. uh, and circularity and and the idea of pushing something actual so far that it has to turn into something um, not actual. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a word I was looking for. Yeah, no, he uses a different word, doesn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. Ephemeral, I guess. That's not yeah. his word, but... You know, the, these these ideas are things that 
very few writers explore until mm-hmm. whatever, really whatever your definition of postmodern uh, writers is. Most most critics start after World War II at mm-hmm. the very least. So you're talking a solid almost 200 years before, um, mm-hmm. in a sense, before literature has caught back up with where Lawrence Stern was in the 1760s. Right. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that said, uh, that's what you get when you try to, try to talk about everything. Right. Possibly, you end up at nothing. Exactly. Uh, and perhaps that is the meaning of the modeled page. Yeah, yeah, I'd say, I'd say so, right. You sound very despondent when you, when you talk about that, almost as if you had a recent bad experience with the modeled page. I don't know, it feels like something from a dream. I don't know. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, Michael, uh, do you have another uh, point from your personal reading group guide? Well, I I, I teased this question, so I'm going to ask it. This is question number one. Thank goodness. So, we'll double back. If this was not going to be question number one, I was going to quit the podcast. No, this one's question one. There are four questions that I've written down. How are you? All right. (laughs) <laughs> Listen, I was on board with this idea of a reading group guide, but how are you supposed to have a four-question reading group guide? We'll get two hours out of it, I bet. Yeah, that's not the point. <laughs> okay. Reading group guides have to be at least eight questions long oh. based on every reading group guide I've ever witnessed. But mine is better. Right, but that's like saying... My film is only 45 minutes long, but I want it to be released in theaters because it's better. Yeah, yeah. That's oh, okay. Well, yeah. if you're if you're I'm on board with that. fine with that, then I, I guess I guess there are no rules. <laughs> Why would there be rules? I yeah, yeah I don't know. This, this podcast has never had rules. Um, question number one. And I wish that were you breaking a rule. It seems like it should be almost. How much of this book is about sex? And why is it all of it? <laughs> you can thank my wife for the wording of that question. <laughs> um, well, now you are just back to classic reading group guide. Yeah. Uh, leading leading self-referential questions that end nowhere. <laughs> um, so... There was, uh, there was a footnote that I was actually trying to find. Mm. Um... That does slightly problematize all of our nudge, nudge, wink stuff about the noses. Mm-hmm. Because that stuff most certainly is there. Sure. But, um, okay, so Sockenbergius is here. Uh, is it before or after Sockenbergius? It's before. It's, it's when he, right when he introduces the idea of noses. Gotcha. Um, so, uh, my, my footnotes somewhere do claim that, um, in the period, noses could be a synecdoche for, um, the unpalatable. Uh Uh-huh. Uh... Um, but that noses also had some other 
Chapter uh, 31, book 3, chapter 31 at the end. By really? the word I mean a nose and nothing more or less. Okay, so this is from the footnotes of the Penguin Classics edition as uh, noted by Melvin New. Um, he says, in addition to its... Uh, he says here phallic implications? I'm not sure what mm, that word means. What does that mean? There is a classical tradition wherein the length of one's nose is equated to the extent of one's wit. Oh. Um, now, of course, the uh, obvious one that that will make a lot of us think of is Cyrano de Bergerac. Right. Uh, the, the play about the man with the comically long nose who was... Um, uh, known as one of the greatest wits of of the age, right? Within the within the story of the play, um, which that itself feels like, like if I wrote a fantasy novel now about like the idea of a king whose health literally uh, impacted like the weather and the crop cycles of his kingdom, mm -hmm. like taking something symbolic and just pushing it to the utmost, like literary representation mm -hmm. um but it does you know it certainly uh makes sense um in yeah. that context uh so new quotes a, a letter that stern wrote to a friend um i am not much in pain on what gives my kind friends so much on the chapter of noses because as the principal t satire throughout that part is leveled at those learned blockheads who in all ages have wasted their time and much learning upon points as foolish it shifts off the idea of what you fear to another point <laughs> um and there's a there's a bracket here right after the idea of what you fear that says excessive bodiness question mark and it's not clear to me if that bracket is knew the the modern right. editor or if it's stern's own right uh, and who knows because bracket. he would use such punctuations so. yes exactly uh so in having our nudges and winks about uh noses and about the 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 other the handful of other sex references button in this and chamber chambermaids Wait, buttonholes and chambermaids? What are you saying? I don't know. There's uh, words coming out of my mouth. Well, that sounds dirty. <laughs> um, you know, let us let us not lose track of the fact that Stern was rarely just body. Oh yeah. Uh, he, you know, he was unafraid to be body. I think, especially if if such a thing would. Uh, would if he thought it was funny basically oh sure yeah he'll, he'll sacrifice almost anything to uh what he thinks is funny um but again like a, a sex joke isn't funny if it's just about sex it's or oh, yeah. it isn't as funny it's funnier if there's other if, if, if there's other more going operating on. yes yeah um and that's i think where where he's really shining in all of this and and yeah the bodiness um, I mean, he's he's a clergyman too, and he just he loved the the moral outrage that was coming out as a result of uh, this book uh, and all of its volumes and stuff. And so, I mean, the the sex jokes were part of that. People yeah. would be 
flabbergasted and appalled that, that such a thing would be written, especially by a clergyman, I, I, I would bet. Uh, and he's probably just laughing to himself that people are so upset about it. Yeah, I think that I think that is accurate. Um, again, we have to we have to keep in mind sort of the ebb and flow of history. Um, yeah. And this is this is not to contradict what you what you've just said because certainly there were was that sort of person in 1760 in England who would be oh, yeah. just outraged by the the bodiness and doubly outraged by the the uh, fact that it was a clergyman doing it. Sure. Um, it, however, you know, we, we think of these attitudes, especially in the Victorian era, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and in many ways, the Victorian era was a, a response and a reaction to uh, the perceived um, degradation of society's morals yeah. in... The, the mid to late 1700s um, you, you know we had a, a a monarchy that was increasingly decadent uh-huh. um, you know we had uh, uh, if, if any if any of our listeners have seen the movie the favorite um, that depicts a queen of England the favorite is it was it was nominated for some Oscars a few years ago mm. um, I call it lesbian King Lear oh um, okay right. because it's it's essentially it's based on true characters gotcha. um, I'm I'm sure that quite a bit was sort of telescoped and and made more dramatic and and less completely accurate sure um but the favorite takes place in the early 1700s uh during the reign of queen anne Mm -hmm. who uh reigned um she first her her husband died at a certain point left her the sole queen and the favorite is is essentially about a battle between two female members of her court for her affections Mm-hmm. Um, so it gives a very sort of Ophelia versus Goneril kind of uh, um, aspect to it. Um, but the the main point I was making is that the favorite does a really good job of showing just how decadent the the British court looked, even in the early 1700s, 50 years before uh, uh, Stern is writing. Um, during some of the like that that era would be when Uncle Toby was in Europe uh, fighting in his campaigns. Um, So these concerns, you know, they start there, they go throughout the the century, um, you know, and and those of us who've taken theater history uh, Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, read about theater history, uh, um, you know, the the theater in London gets increasingly risque as the 1700s go on. There's a lot of, like, uh, people who conspire to commit what would today be known as sexual coercion um there's a lot of like incest and it's like some of it's like oh we found we twist in the last act we found out we're not actually brother and sister one of us is adopted so it's okay but then it's like as as the century goes on like some of it doesn't even stop there like yeah yeah so um you know and as as happens in cultures like as one segment of society moves a certain way there will almost always be another segment of society that uh reacts in exactly the opposite way extremes creating extremes um and that 
So the the decadent sort of court life, um, by many people's view, climaxed with um, King George the Third. Mm-hmm. Um, not known as Mad King George during the American Revolution, but known as Mad King George somewhat later. After, um, yeah. Yeah. but you know, d- certainly known to the the patriots of the American Revolution as a tyrant and as a you yeah. know, incredibly selfish ruler. Um, and so the, the Victorian era culturally was a shift against that. Um, yeah. and, and the, the perception of a, of a decadent society becomes replaced by the perception of an extremely, um, almost puritanical society. One, one very given to proper rules, proper behavior, yeah. um, yeah. et cetera and so forth. And Stern in, within these shifting cultural winds, Stern is almost right in the middle. Like the 1760s would be ge- or chronologically, I guess, a midpoint between say the days of Queen Anne and um, the days of Victoria. Uh, so that Stern is able to, get away with putting some pretty body stuff in his book um, because he's not going to be universally condemned and drummed out of the church for this. Right. Yeah, no, the the, the chronological placement of this book is, is an interesting thing to consider, and you brought up the American Revolution. That's not far off right. when this book was written in that, that decade of the 1760s. Um, I mean, you've got just a few more years after that that things boil over. Right. But the the politics of it were going on. Right. At this point. Well, and then... so I mean, in our own context as Americans, looking at this and thinking back to American history uh, in in this regard, I don't know that there's much directly going on, but you can think of. The broader context, well, you think of like the the military campaigns with Uncle Toby going and obsessively recreating some of that. We might want to talk more about that. We we do later on. We will. Um, but uh, that uh, whole idea um, sheds a little bit of light on the battles of the American Revolution. I mean, you've got that. At least what we were taught in in elementary school as Americans, you've got the right. British who were. Um, used to this certain style of warfare, and then the Americans wouldn't fight fair. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, another interesting thing to think about is um, at the t- at the time that Stern's right, especially Stern's writing his first volumes, um, the there's a conflict going on called the Seven Years' War. Mm. Now, in textbooks, this. Uh, gets charted from 1756 to 1763. Um, And a lot of historians, including Winston Churchill in uh, the history of the English-speaking peoples, actually refer to the Seven Years' War as the First World War. Um, And this is because, so the Seven Years' War is a conflict between the major European powers. Um, So you've got, you know, France, England, um, I, France and England, you could call the two main, you know, antagonists. Um, I was trying to remember if Germany was involved yet. I don't, I don't think they really were yet. Um, and certainly Germany as we know it today didn't exist, of course, but, um, uh, right. 
Anyway, the, so you've got France on one side, England on the other side, and then sort of a network of treaties among the other European powers fighting for one or the other. Um, but because of where we are in history, these two nations and the other European nations as well have this whole network of holdings all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, so this this war is fought on the European continent with, with campaigns going on uh, you know, across across Europe, but it's also fought in uh, the East Indies and mm -hmm. in the West Indies, in um, what is now the United States and Canada. This conflict was called the Seven Years' War. No, sorry, that's the one I'm talking about. This conflict was called the French and Indian War. Gotcha. So what we, and, and if we learn about anything as Americans in sort of a typical, you know, elementary education, mm -hmm. we learn about the French and Indian War, we often don't learn that the French and Indian War was just a subset of, of the Seven broader... Years' War of this global conflict that was going on. Um, you know, it happened in the Middle East. It happened in Africa. Like, truly, all over the world was this war being fought. Um, so the thing that occurred to me is that it's interesting that, uh, again, 1760 is going to be right smack dab in the middle of this war. Um, because of the way news travels, even though the war officially ends in 63, like, it's going to be on people's mind. People are still going to be processing it. Mm -hmm. So it, it occurs to me if you wanted to do, like, a, a real good, like, historical uh, historical literary study of some kind, you could, you could analyze Tristram Shandy as a Seven Years' War novel. Um, sure. That'd be interesting. Yeah. And I've never heard of that being done, so... So there's your assignment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was gonna say any any lit grad students listening to, uh, listening to us here, yeah, go. You you can have that one for free, um, unless Ethan beats you to it. Yeah, well, your lips to the ears of the Almighty. Uh, <laughs> so yes, the uh, um, what what occurred to me when when you were when you were remarking just now, Michael, was that. Also that, so it's interesting that Stern starts publishing this novel in the middle of the Seven Years' War, and a large aspect of it is looking back to the last major set of European wars. Right, right. So it's, it's like, a very rough, I guess, analogy would be like, if we were writing a novel now um, about people our age, and maybe indirectly we were talking about the, the conflict in Iraq... Sure. For example, but like part of that was viewed through the lens of a father character who had fought in the Vietnam War. Right. It's like if you were using the Vietnam War to look at the Iraq. Right. Conflict. Which isn't necessarily an original idea, but no, no, it's, not at all. It's along the same lines as this. I, I also want to remark here that I I, I want to take a, a a meta contextual approach to what we've just been talking about here because. We started talking about how this book is all about sex and wound up talking about warfare. Yes. Uh, especially in the person of uh, Uncle Toby that I want to talk more about who has this wound that essentially or effectively makes him impotent. Um, yeah, I thought... And we, we, we this doesn't have to be what we do, but I thought that the next episode might just be the Uncle Toby episode. I'm okay with that. So um, I just want to mention this in passing and then go on. <laughs> well, the, the one thing I wanted to talk about about Uncle Toby in this episode, since we're talking about everything... Right. And everything includes Uncle Toby, is the idea that his model... Uh, 
of this this ongoing conflict in Europe is the book's chief visual image of the book itself. Right. Yes, um, exactly. So in other words, just as Tristram, the narrator, tries to tell the entirety of his, his life and opinions, and the more that he does it, the more he has to do, Uncle Toby is attempting more and more precisely to... Pin down um, or recreate, recreate and, yeah, yeah. A, a, a model of um, the battle, uh, yeah, an ongoing conflict in Europe. And we even yep. have stuff talking about like how long it takes the newspapers to get there, and mm-hmm. um, so he, he can't do it real time. So he's he's again in a similar image to the one you quoted about Tristram constantly trying to play catch-up and constantly falling behind, Uncle Toby is also constantly trying to catch up to the news of the war and is constantly falling behind, um, arguably, more and more. uh, Mm -hmm. Interestingly, until the war ends. And Tristram excoriates the ending of the war. It's this famous treaty, I think it's the Treaty of Ghent, um that you know famously ended this i should know what the the name of that conflict was in the early 1700s um but it it ends this this set of ongoing european wars and it's a for for the at the time it's a very celebrated treaty because it ended this series of like nasty endless wars um and tristram basically excoriates this because it took away uncle toby's hobby horse it took away his purpose for Living, which I think you can read back into the idea that um, Tristram will never catch up with himself in an interesting way, right? Uh, because he he phrases it and he he you know expounds upon it as as if it's despair, as if it's like a folly that he's mm-hmm. that he's doing that you know he's he's trying to do this foolish thing, but um, if you reverse all of that, you get a very joyful depiction of a task that is pleasant that, you know, Tristram says multiple times he'd like to devote his life to. Mm -hmm. And there will always be more material for him. Like it will never end. Right. Until he ends. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, do you have, so you, we've done two of your right discussion questions. Do you want to do one, two more of them, or do you want to save them for next time to I prove think me wrong? I'm I'm going to save one for next time okay. because I think it will relate to our discussion of Uncle Toby some more. Excellent. But there's one more, and I don't know. Do you we'll, think we'll, we have see. time to give it just, just at this point? Just a, just a bit because I don't think it's it's the most important question on my list. Sure. And if we want to talk more about it. Uh, we'll we we'll so have to time. rein it in <laughs> and talk about it next time. We're excellent at that. We're so good at reining it in, so I'm going to challenge both of us to do that. So this is question number three. I'm going to save question number four until next episode. Question number three, and, and I'm going to defend this question and maybe expound upon it a little bit more after I read it. Question number three, which makes it not a good reading guide question. How much of this book is about censorship, and why is it all of it? Uh, Interesting. So here's my point. Uh, I don't know how hot a topic censorship was in the 1760s, um, whether it was really an issue at all. Uh, I'm mostly talking about the self-censorship that goes on in the book and 
it as it relates to the questions of morality and uh, of um, not disturbing sensibilities too much, which seems to be the purpose behind it in an ironic, humorous way. Yes. Uh, that he censors himself in such a way that you know exactly what he's doing, so the censorship doesn't really even matter except to not make explicit the things that he is implicitly saying. Right. Um, yeah, when you when you said censorship, I, I fully admit it's not even a question that had occurred to me at all. Sure. Uh, uh, or an aspect. Um which makes it really interesting to me. Uh, and my first instinct was along the lines of what you just said, that uh, if there's any form of censorship, it's self-censorship. Yeah. Um, certainly, I would never... I, I, I'm willing to be proven wrong, but I would never imagine that you'd have in this book anything similar to, for example, um, what we talk about in Don Quixote when we talk about censorship there. Sure. Um, I don't think there's any equivalent force no. to the idea that, you know, if you if you say the wrong thing, if you write the wrong thing, the Spanish Inquisition could just kidnap you from your house, right. torture you for months, and then execute you without any real trial. Right. Um, there's, there's nothing like that. But, um, but there the... w- would be repercussions that he could face. Absolutely, and that's 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 why the idea of self censorship I think is very important here because um, I think the British sensibility, at, certainly at the time, would be much more along the lines of we censor ourselves so that no institution has to censor us. Right. Um, I... And actually, I recently listened to. Uh, to give yet another pitch for a podcast that has no idea we exist, <laughs> um, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, mm. which um, is my favorite uh, podcast that only releases four to six hour episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did about a six hour episode that was fascinating. Um, call it was it was called Painfotainment, and it was sort of a history of. Um, public torture and execution as entertainment. Mm. Um, which I told my wife about this and she instantly said he didn't go for infopainment. <laughs> which, uh, Dan Carlin, if you ever happen to listen to this, uh, you can have that one for free. There you go. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, info, info painment, painfotainment. Uh, he he mentioned one thing specifically about British law, especially British law. The farther back you go, um, he said the British perceived the French as having a very intrusive uh, policing system. Basically, oh that, yes, that um, you know the French were what the French to the to the British. We're analogous to like what we think of the KGB doing in uh-huh. Soviet Russia, um, and that the British system was different in that it, it sort of sounds like broken windows policing. Uh, they had far fewer enforcers of the law, but if you got caught breaking a law, the punishment tended to be very harsh. <laughs> and so the theory was that you kept the punishments harsh so that the deterrence would be so high that you didn't have to have as many law enforcers mm-hmm. um, 
And to me, that that tracks along with what we're saying about the self censorship here. Like, yeah, you censor yourself, and and England, you know, at this point was I don't know when the the position of master of revels went away, um, but certainly in Shakespeare's time, less than 150 years before this, right, you had a specific office um, in London. Uh, you had a guy who read and reviewed all of the plays and said. Uh, you can't say this, you can't say this, you can't say this, because that's offensive to the crown. Mm-hmm. Um, like, Shakespeare had to submit all of his plays to a man called the Master of Rebels who told him that stuff. Right. Um, and I don't, I don't think, I, like, I don't think Stern was submitting his manuscripts to anyone like that, though I don't know the history well enough to be sure. Um, right. But certainly, you know, Stern is closer in time to that period in England than he is to us now. Uh, yeah. and so that sensibility probably was still on the, uh, um, mm-hmm. on the lines. Of, and yeah. The... And part of the formation of the character of writers and other sure. entertainers. Yeah. And, and I was going to say too, whether, whether it was like an official sort of position or, um, mandate or something, it, it was at least social. You could be socially yes. censored, I think. Exactly. Um, if if you offended enough of the the general public, you would effectively lose everything. Certainly, and um, when when we say general public, and what Stern would have thought of as a reading public <laughs> yeah. would be very different yeah. at this time. You have a much smaller pool of people who can and will read and buy your book, right? Um, and they tend to be, you know. Better educated, which in this context means wealthier and potentially and probably more uh, positions of greater power, right? Mm-hmm. So um, all of that lends itself to, in some ways, a much riskier situation than if you had a set of rules that, you know, if you if you break this rule, you get executed or put in jail or whatever. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, Stern is navigating some very tricky waters. It would be really interesting to uh, uh, analyze this book again as as like a, a exercise in self censorship, but also in navigating uh, sort of getting away with excuse me certain things um, slyly or cleverly or through the the use of literary gamesmanship that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get away with uh sort of if you put it right there on the surface yeah 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 i like that that covers pretty much what i wanted to say and i think it it relates to our everything discussion it does yeah absolutely because again if you well like you you said that said it a little bit ago michael if if uh if you are writing everything, that does include certain unpalatable things. Exactly. Whether it be sex is the obvious one, but also, you know, simply political realities about uh, how the people in power shape um, the world that everyone is in, uh, and that the people doing the shaping might not appreciate having pointed out to either themselves or to other people. Yeah. Um, so if you are going to write about everything, what is your method of doing that without being uh, censored in one way or the other, including, yeah. you know, having your life censored, your, your continued existence censored, without being killed is what I'm saying. Right. 
But I was saying it slyly, so you didn't know. Right. You were censoring it for me. Exactly. Did we just create our most well-structured podcast episode on this entire podcast? I suspect that we did, yeah. <laughs> we certainly stayed on topic more, than, perhaps, than any other episode I can remember. It's remarkable to me. Okay, it is remarkable, but we did cheat. Did we? Well, because I, I said this episode is about everything. Yeah, I know, but which it means was still, that... like, contained within the topic mentioned and, like, like bordered and, like, everything bookended is... and all that. But everything is everything? Yeah. So it's like anything we said could be part of it. Right, it could be, but it still flowed, is my point. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Uh... Yeah, I don't know why I, I like, agreed with your compliment and then tried to understand. And then, and then wait, argued with it. Wait, no, that is that is actually on brand for us. It, it is exactly on brand. That's that's how we operate. <laughs> well, thank we you. We agree very um, antagonistically. Yeah, that's... Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you, gentle listener, for... Uh, this this one was your reward for bearing with us through the first two episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, um, thank you for for uh, being here still, and uh, yeah, we are Michael and Ethan. Um, you We're in can... a room. Yep. So there we go. All right, that's all I wanted to say. Excellent. <laughs> um, so yes, that said. Now I forgot where we were. Oh, one yeah. More. We are at... What? We're going to do one more of this. Yes. Thank you. We are the... You you fed me the line and I still couldn't say the line. <laughs> um, one more episode. We have Disgusting. one more episode about the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy Gentleman. There you go. Thank you. Uh, and we hope you will join us for that. Uh, if you like this show, feel free to check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, including Intermission, our backstage uh, theater audio drama podcast, uh, Pokemon Rollout, our uh, flagship Pokemon United tabletop RPG actual play podcast. You did it so much better in my dreams. I know I did. I don't <laughs> know what I don't know what happened when we both woke up. Um, they play the game Pokemon United and tabletop. record it. The tabletop Pokemon RPG tabletop. game, <laughs> which I know is me saying role-playing game game. <laughs> uh, it's it's very good. The one episode I've heard, which is the one I was on, but a lot of people like it. Uh, so yeah, listen to that. Um, we have Us Play Fiasco, uh, another real play podcast of the game Fiasco. Uh which I, I describe, I don't know if, if makers of Fiasco would appreciate this, but I describe it as sort of a hybrid RPG improv game. I think they'd love that. Okay, good. Uh, then money, please. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, yes, it's a, it, it is also a very good show. Uh, Michael is on it a lot of the time. A lot not of the time. all of the time. Not all the time. Uh, so, there's that. Uh-huh. Do we have any other podcasts at this point? Uh, there are a few in the in the in the gummy works. Well, that's a way to say it. Yep. Um, they might be out by the time this 
episode yeah, airs. Yeah, but like every time I've said something will be out by the time an episode airs, it isn't, so I'm yeah, not so gonna say it. Just and that way maybe lookout. it will be. There you go. Uh anyway, um Stay on the website. Yeah, do that. Uh or maybe I'll maybe if something is out I'll like record something and put it in here. Hmm. Which is an amount of editing you know I'll never do. Um <laughs> Yeah, so that said, uh, I am on Twitter at Bjartlett. That's B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. Michael, where are you on Twitter? I'm at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L. Excellent. Uh, feel free to join us in the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. Uh-huh. Uh, you'll have to ask to join, but we will let you in unless... Unless... You are... Someone who makes that noise. Good night. There you go. Uh, thank you, though, because I didn't have anything. So <laughs> glad you supplied me with something. Um, let's see. Yes, that's... Is that everything? Sure. <laughs> sure. Uh, so then, until next time, gentle listener, just remember, it's our party, and we'll cry because... Crying is part of everything. Ooh, deep. Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.